Hi, I'm Jeff Watts, and I want to welcome you to the Renaissance Podcast. And I also want to thank you for partnering with us as we strive to reach the heart of our city with the truth and love of Jesus. There's always something new and exciting happening here at Ren, so please follow us on social media. You can find us by searching Renaissance Decatur. And you can also connect with us by visiting our website, rendecatur.org. Enjoy the podcast, and thank you so much for being a part of this community. Welcome to Renaissance. My name is Jeff. I am one of the leaders here at the church, and and I want to share something with you. About um, a year, year and a half ago, I embarked on a journey of sorts um, in my life. I am a huge fan of music. Anyone here music fans? I mean, all things music, live music, recorded music, you know, everything but Christian music. Ha ha, just kidding. Because <laughs> is it really music? <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> Anyways, um, I decided to stop listening to music that I already knew. Everyone's got those favorite bands, right, or whatever um, that you just go to when you're feeling excited or you're going to go work out or, or whatever it is. You just want to listen to some really great music. You just pick out that one album or that one playlist or whatever. I just decided about a year and a half ago to stop doing that. And I just let Apple Music or Spotify or Pandora, one of those music subscription places, I let it just curate my playlist for me. Every Monday, I get a three new playlists in my inbox, and I just listen to them. And some of the songs I love, some of the bands I really like, some of them not so much. But because I've been doing this for about a year and a half or so, the strangest thing has popped up. I'll go to a store, I'll be at the mall, or I'll get in a car with a friend or whatever, and they'll have the radio on or something else, and a song that I'm familiar with will come on. And I will be like rushed back in my mind's eye to the time and the place when I first heard that song. I have this overwhelming memory, like I can listen to songs from my, my high school or middle school, and I can tell you, like the people I was running with, I can tell you the football games we used to go to, I can tell you some of the other things we used to do, I won't do that right now, just because I'm a pastor of a church, and I shouldn't tell you those things, but anyways, but I mean, I am mentally just rushed back to that place in my youth, all because of a song that I had listened to. Isn't that great? And smells will do the same thing. It could be like a cool summer evening and I'll smell that fresh cut grass and the neighbor is barbecuing something and immediately I'm rushed back to my childhood when my dad used to barbecue on the weekends. Memories are so crazy that way. And they evoke in you not just like an intellectual thought, but they sometimes will evoke in you even, even like a physiological response. Okay, um, I went to college at Illinois State University in Normal, right? Go Redbirds. And while I was there for a couple of years, I lived in a dormitory that had um, a number of elevators in there. And I lived at the, the top of the building here. And so these elevators, and I, this is not hyperbole, I'm not exaggerating this at all. These elevators got stuck weekly in this dormitory. Like I can't, I can't even count on my hands how many times that I've been stuck in an elevator when I was in college, okay? And I hated, I was terrified. I was a person who's very anxious. Anybody else get anxious on elevators? That's me. And one time we got stuck at 2 a.m. in the morning, don't ask, and we were open. <laughs> we, we opened the elevator doors as we were stuck and no one was coming to help us and all we saw was a wall. Oh. <laughs> I, I almost met Jesus that day. It is real. Anyways, so I'm out of college, I don't know, 30 years now plus, but I was in Bloomington not long ago with my oldest daughter, Riley, and I said, you want to go do something fun? She's like, sure. <laughs> and so she, we go to my old dorm, and I said, this is where dad used to live uh, when I was in college. I said, let's break in. She's like, okay. <laughs> so 
we, we, we broke into the dorm, whatever, and, and, I, and I, I wanted to take her to the top of the building, and I want her to overlook the campus and the city, and just to kind of picture what I used to picture when I was, you know, 20 years old or so. We get on the elevator, the door's closed, we push the button, and the smells hit me, and the sound hit me, and, and my, I started sweating just being in that elevator. Aren't memories weird that way? And it's crazy the things we remember and the things we forget. Let me ask you this question. You don't have to answer out loud. These are rhetorical questions. But consider for a moment, what's your favorite gift that you received for Christmas uh, this year, right, a month ago, or maybe the year before? Can you think of something that someone gave you that you, you really appreciate? Everyone's looking up in there. Okay. Do you have an idea of what that might be? Okay, and let me ask you another question. What what'd you have for lunch two Tuesdays ago? Isn't it weird the things that we remember and the things that we don't remember? I bet many of us would admit that we could probably remember something that someone gave us for Christmas this year or the year before, but not what we ate for lunch. Memories, they seem to attach themselves to significant uh, parts of our lives. In fact, a generation before me, you could ask any of them a question, where were you when you got word that uh, John F. Kennedy had been uh, shot and killed in Dallas? And they'll tell you exactly where they were. My generation, possibly it's when the Twin Towers fell. My daughter, my oldest daughter, who's now 17, she wasn't even born then. She has no memory of that. All she knows of it is from the history books. But these memories are an interesting thing for us. I was reading this last week online. Wired Magazine had an article that talked about our brains and memories. And it said this, and it struck, it struck me. It says, our brains do not contain memories. They are memories. Think about that. When you're reading something, whether it be the Bible or anything, you're, you're remembering what that letter A is supposed to sound like. You're remembering what the definition of those words are supposed to mean. You're remembering the grammar structure that you learned in English class if you were paying attention. You're remembering all of these things. When you're, when you're learning to drive, my 15-year-old is learning to drive. She asks the question at every four-way intersection, who goes first, Dad? Who goes first? I said, great question. <laughs> <laughs> How about we let everyone go first? <laughs> and then we'll just putter on out there. But you remember things like the rules of the road. You remember, listen, this is important. You remember that the left lane is for passing only. And you cannot drive in the left lane. Say amen if you want to get to heaven. Amen. Yes. These memories are weird and they pop up in the strangest times, strangest places, and they come up almost seemingly out of nowhere. Uh, the story I want to tell you is about a, a man named David. His, he's actually a king, King David from the Old Testament. If you have a Bible with you, in 2 Samuel chapter 23, I want to read a story of David and some of his uh, military men, some of his soldiers who are with him. I'll set the story up this way. David is the king of the Israelites, God's people. And, and the Israelites have an enemy. They have many enemies, but there's this one enemy that seems to be on refrain always in the Old Testament. They're called the Philistines. Now, just so you know this, whenever I say the word Philistines, you can feel free to boo. Let's try. Philistines. Boo. Yes, well done. So David and his military men are encamped just outside of a village. And the Philistines... Yes, they are encamped in this village and actually stopping the progress to the capital city that is Jerusalem. David would much rather be there. But David is sitting here with his military men and starting in 2 Samuel 23, beginning in verse 14, this is what we read. David, the king, was in a stronghold. He's in a, strength, a strengthened position with his military men 
And the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Strange. I just have to assume that David is having some memory recall in this moment. As he's encamped in a cave in the the valleys outside of Bethlehem, he remembers a day when he was in Bethlehem. I don't know if you know this, but David's hometown is Bethlehem. It's where he was raised. It's where he grew up. He had had seven older brothers. It's a miracle he survived seven older brothers anyways. But in the middle of this military sort of effort, he has this strange recall that, man, the water from that well by the gate in my hometown was so good. Man, I wish I could could have a, a drink of that. I wonder what caused him to think of that. The Bible tells us earlier in this chapter that it was the harvest season. So they're out in the fields, knocking down the grain, pulling up the beans, whatever they're doing. I don't know about you, but that's my favorite time of year, the harvest season, as the days grow colder and, you know, it's nice football games, cookouts, bonfire, someone say baked beans, amen. All of that. (laughs) Yes, yes. But David, for some reason, has a memory. And just without even thinking, I I suspect, I can't say that for sure, but without even suspecting, he says these words, man, I'd love to have a drink from that well. Now, there's some men with him. I mentioned his military men. There's what they call the mighty men of David. There's actually 30 plus in number. In the Old Testament, you can can read all of their names. They call them the, the mighty 30. They actually might be more like 37. It depends. Just know this. At any point, there's probably no more than 30, which is why they call them 30. And of the 30, there are three that are called the mighty of the mighty of the men. Reading on in verse 16. It says, then the three mighty men, which we'll read about and learn about in a little bit, they broke through the camp of the Philistines. All right, hear this. David says, man, I wish, thank you. David says, I I wish I could have a drink. And then three of his top military commanders leave camp in the middle of the night, break through the camp of of the Philistines, boo, and draw water up out of the well that was by the gate. And they carried it and brought it back to David. Now, who were these three military men? I want to spend just a a minute talking about these mighty warriors, if you will, these soldiers in David's army. Starting in around verse 8 of 2 Samuel 23, you see their names. One guy, his name was Josheb-something or other. It's a Hebrew name I can't pronounce. Don't want to try. But what Samuel tells us about Josheb is at one point, when when the enemy was attacking God's people, the Israelites, Joseph... Jo- yeah, Joseph, he, he stood his ground, and with a spear in his hand, he, he, he killed 800 attacking forces in a single day, the Bible tells us. This guy's pretty incredible as a warrior. Would you agree? Maybe modern language, we would say he's pretty B.A. And if you don't know what that is, if you don't know what that is, you can Google it. Or not. It doesn't matter. 
The second of the three is a guy named Eleazar. Eleazar had an interesting story as well that Samuel records for us. At one point when the Philistines, boo, were coming against the nation of Israel, all of the army fled. David and Eleazar are the only two people left in a field, and back to back they fought off the enemy. It says that Eleazar swung his sword so many times and, and killed so many of the enemy that his hand literally had cramped and frozen around the sword. They had to pry the sword out of his fingers at the end of the day. He was a mighty, mighty man. The last, guy, the last guy, his name is Shema, he too stood in a field and defended it against the, the enemy when they came against the Israelites and all of the Israelites had fled. He's the only guy who stayed to defend some of God's land. He's the only guy who stayed to defend the field. These men were incredible warriors and they had chosen to risk their own lives to go pull water from a well for a king named David. How, how did they get so attached to David? Why were they so devoted to David? What is it about David that draws them to do this, to even risk their own life to give him, to, to satisfy a memory from his childhood? Well, if you don't know the story of David, David was no chump. David was a shepherd, sounds chumpy, but David, when he was a child, watching over the, the sheep of his family, he tells the story himself where sometimes, every now and again, a lion or a bear would make its way into the fold and grab a lamb or grab a sheep and run away. Now, I don't know if it's by you, but if it was me, I would just pull out my ledger and go, minus one. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> whoops, I don't know what else to say. Not David, not David. The story goes that he, he took off on foot and chased after the lion and he chased after the bear and he, he got the bear or the lion to release the lamb in its mouth and he would take the lamb and place it back. And he says, if the bear or the lion raised up against me, I reached out with my hands, grabbed it by the beard and killed it. I mean, think about this. With his bare hands, he kills a bear or a lion, not 20 yards away with a rifle, not some other tool, maybe a pocket knife, maybe a rock, I have no idea, but he kills a lion and a bear. David's pretty B.A. himself, yes? But I think there's something else at work too. I think there's another reason why uh, these men would attach themselves to David in such a profound way, even willing to risk their own life again. I think they know that David is chosen. I think they know that, that it is an anointing of God himself that David will be king, that David is destined to be king, that David will rule God's people, and they are choosing to follow David because David is God's choice. Do you think when you get to heaven, you'll be able to see people from the Bible? I hope so. Well, how about this? Do you think when you get to heaven, you'll get to see maybe family members that have gone before you? I hope so. I don't know what that looks like, but I tell you, there's a guy I'm desperate to meet. I mean, the obligatory person you go see first in heaven is who? Jesus. Thank you for that. Jesus is the answer. Yes, he's the first guy you go see, right? But then there's all of these other characters that we've read about in our Bible study time that you wanna see. I have been attached to David, attracted to David's story for a very long time. I think partly it's because he's a musician, partly he's very artistic and creative. I think partly it's because he killed bears with his, 
bare hands. I think it's all of these things. In fact, I'm drawn towards David because of all the people in the Old Testament scriptures. He appears to be the one who follows after God in such a profound way. And we get to see all of that laid out before us. And he does it even with failings in his life. If you know the story of his shortcomings. And yet God tells us that David was a man after his own heart. I'm attracted to the story of David. But it's not just because of the things that he's done. I'm also attracted to the story of David in the Old Testament because of what I think it points to in the New Testament. There's a way to study our Bibles that's called typology. Has anybody ever heard of typology before? It's okay if you haven't. Let me just try to Cliff Notes version this for us here. The writers of Scripture, led by the Holy Spirit, would oftentimes tell us stories and, and have images and pictures and stories of people that were types of uh, a fulfillment that would come in the New Testament. For example, there are many pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament, even though we never read Jesus' name in the Old Testament, but there's a lot of parallels and pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament. So when he's born in the New Testament, when we hear about his birth in the New Testament, we can look and go, oh, this is just like that was in the Old Testament. Let me give you an example. David, I argue, is a type of Jesus that was to come. There's some similarities in their story. I won't give them all to you, but just know this. David's hometown, Bethlehem. Jesus' hometown, Bethlehem. David was an unassuming young man that was chosen by God to be king. Jesus was an unassuming son of a carpenter, they thought. Out of Galilee, of all places, right? Who, who would have thought he could be anything? And yet he was chosen by God to be the Messiah, the one who would mediate peace between God who is holy and perfect and people who are sinful and broken. They didn't think that he would be the one that could be the king. David had a close associate of his, a confidant, if you will, who betrayed him at one point. And when remorse hit this confidant, he went out into the fields and he hanged himself. Judas also had a close confidant that betrayed him. His name is Judas, remember him? And when remorse hit him for turning Judas over to the Romans, he hanged himself as well. I could go on and on, but just know this. That David truly is a picture of Jesus who is to come. All of that to set up this one question that I had this week, and that might be by far my longest introduction that I've ever had. <laughs> if Jesus and David are parallels, if David is a picture of Jesus, then maybe are the mighty men of David, are we the parallel to the mighty men of David? Let me lay this out again. If, if David is a picture of Jesus who is to come and he had a lot of people devoted to him and follow, followed him, willing to even risk their own lives to serve him, then are, are we a picture of those mighty men as well? I don't know. This is the question that I was asking myself this week. But I know this. There was something in David that caused those men to devote themselves to him. And if I could be honest, there's been something in Jesus that has caused me to devote myself to him as well. I do. I am one of those people who does believe that Jesus is the chosen one of God, the one chosen to liberate his people. I believe that. I have faith in that. But whereas David would ask his followers to pick up sword and spear and follow him, Jesus is asking something altogether different of us. If you were to turn in your Bibles to Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, we get a picture of what Jesus is asking. 
Jesus calling to the crowds. This is so great. Wherever Jesus went, crowds gathered. Isn't that wonderful? Unless you're Jesus <laughs> or an introvert, just throwing it out there. <laughs> and calling to the crowd to come to him and with his disciples next to him, his closest associates, Jesus said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Again, where David was asking his followers to take up sword and spear, Jesus is asking something altogether different. He says, you need to take up your cross and follow me. Now, let me unpack a couple things for us here. Um, I think what Jesus is telling them is a significant um, point that we as believers need to understand in our Christian faith. And I make no assumption that everyone in the room is a Christian. I'm just, I'm leading from my life here. So I'll just throw this out there. That to become a Christian requires some things of us. And Jesus lays out some of them here. He says the first is to deny yourself. Second is to take up your cross. And the third is to follow him. Deny yourself. Let's talk about that for a minute. This is on the heels, if you don't know the story of, of, of Mark chapter 8. Jesus had just told his disciples that he's about to be arrested and crucified. Peter, the, the, the loudmouth disciple, if you will, goes to Jesus, and this is my favorite part, rebukes Jesus. No, Lord, this will never happen. And, and what does Jesus say to him? If you know the story, he tells him, get behind me, Satan. He says, no, no, you're being motivated by the, the king of this world, not the king of heaven. I must go do these things. Okay, all that to say, then Jesus pulls his disciples close, all the crowds, and says, listen, deny yourself. The implication is there's a choice to be made. Someone's getting denied. Who will it be? Is it Jesus in his way? That's what Peter said. He says, no, no, Lord, it can't be this. And Jesus says, it has to be this. You can't deny what God has asked of me. You can't deny what God is calling me to. If anyone gets denied here, it's you, he says. To follow Jesus means that you deny yourself. <laughs> Woo! Where do I sign up? It sounds so cruel that the Lord wouldn't allow you to do the things that you're desperate to do and long to do and want to do. Can I tell you, if you knew the eventual end of these things, if you were God yourself, you too would try to stop yourself. You too would try to stop some of the things you're doing because he knows that road. He knows where that heads. That thing that's so, <laughs> so wonderful inside of you that you're desperate to, to do is, is a, uh, a trap if you will, for you. We as followers of Jesus, we learn to deny ourselves first and to follow him, to, to submit to him. Does it truly matter what we want some days? In our modern day, of course it does. We're quite narcissistic. It is all about us. Of course it is. But not, not for this life, not for the life that, that God has called us to that we learn to deny ourselves first and foremost. Secondly, he says that you should take up your cross. The other gospels add the word daily. Take up your cross daily. Let's just talk about that for a minute. Um, I love you, but giving your life to Jesus at a youth camp some 20 years ago <laughs> was wonderful and the experience was great, but I'm telling you, followers of Jesus submit their lives to him daily, daily, daily. We were praying in my office this morning, Joe and I and a couple other guys, and 
um, just praying for us as a church, just asking God to do great things, right? It's just good stuff to do. And we are reminded that it is, in fact, a daily call to follow Jesus um, that we're asked to do. It is asked of us every day to surrender to Jesus. Uh, Pastor Jack, a couple weeks ago, talked about a friend um, who was asked, who, this, this guy had written, he's a Christian, he'd written many books before, and somebody asked him one time, when did you choose to follow Jesus? And the guy responded with these words, today. <laughs> he's like, no, no, you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time, you've been a Christian a long time, you wrote these great books, right, you're a great speaker, when did you decide to follow Jesus? And he says, today. May that be an encouragement to us that it is in fact a daily ask of the Lord to follow him. Would you agree? We do it daily. We deny ourselves, choose to follow him, exercising all of our free will to attach ourselves to him, and we take up our cross. Now, what does this mean? We are so far removed from what the cross actually represents. I think we miss it. Not to make fun of people who wear crosses, not to make fun of people who put crosses or little fishies on their bumper stickers of their cars or any of those things, but I'm, I'm here to tell you that's not what Jesus means when he says, take up your cross. <laughs> If you don't know this, a cross truly is a method of execution. You might as well put an electric chair around your neck, <laughs> a picture of an electric chair on a gold chain around your neck. The cross is a picture of condemnation. The cross is a picture of a criminal uh, carrying a heavy wooden beam to a hill where he'll be nailed to it to then die as a public spectacle. The, to carry your cross means to be ridiculed and mocked by those in your community. To carry your cross means you have a death sentence that you're walking out. Carrying your cross is not just hardships that you have to endure in your life. I, I'm, I struggle with anxiety. I've confessed that many times up here before. It sucks. I hate it. This morning, I'm going to cry. This is so awesome. You should try it. Cry in front of people. It's great. <laughs> Five minutes before the nine o'clock service starts, I go find my wife and my hands are shaking. I'm just, I'm nervous. I'm, eh. I've been preaching in front of people for years. Why am I nervous? And um, I, just, I just asked her, so would you pray for me? And she did. She just prayed for me. And it helps, okay? When prayer works, we know that. But hear me, my cross to bear is not anxiety. <laughs> it's not a difficult spouse. It's not trouble with my boss. That's, that's not a cross to bear. Are you kidding me? A cross to bear is death to yourself. It's death to yourself. It's not challenges. It's not difficulties. It's not addiction. It's, not, it's, it's beyond those things. It's death. Jesus says, die for me. Die. What's great about this is he follows all of this up with these words and follow me. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Now we know the story, you know how this ends. You know where Jesus goes from here? Soon he's arrested, soon he's, he, he's crowned with thorns, soon he's nailed to a cross, soon he dies. And he's buried in a grave and God raises him from the dead. You wanna follow him? That's the picture of our future. That we too will die 
that like Christ before us will raise from the dead. We have the hope of resurrection. I just got a little excited there for a minute. That was kind of fun. That's what we have to look forward to. Should we stay the course with Jesus? To deny ourselves, to take up the cross daily, to follow him. Here's the difficult thing. We don't want to do it. We don't want to do it. The men of David saw something in him that caused them to follow him. If we're not sold, uh, this is going to sound so hard. Um, If we're not totally surrendered to Jesus, it's quite possible we don't fully see what he's making available to us. We don't see what God intends us to see so that we would surrender everything for him. Something missing there. This is that moment in John's gospel where he writes, I I was blind, but now I see. See, there's something that's just clouding the way we see things. But when the Holy Spirit, God himself, opens our eyes to see the truth, you can't unsee it. You can't unsee it. And and in that, you you devote yourself towards him. Are, Are we a picture of the mighty men of David? Are we, are we that antitype that was to come? Are we devoted to Jesus? And yet he's not calling us to carry sword or spear, but to carry a cross, to surrender even our own lives to serve him. That's the question. If I could go back to 2 Samuel chapter 23 and finish this quick story. Starting in verse 16 again, here we are. The three mighty men broke through the camp, the Philistines, boo, thank you, and they drew water out of the well of Bethlehem (laughs) that was by the gate and carried and brought it back to David in a jug, in a jar, in an animal skin, I don't know, a little bit, a lot of bit, probably, I have no idea, but they did it. They risked their lives. How long were they gone? A day, two? I don't know. It doesn't say. There's a big deal. Samuel records it for us. And they bring it back to David, and look what it says in the second half of verse 16. But David would not drink of it, and he poured it out on the ground. (laughs) What? (laughs) Like, I don't know, man. If I was one of those guys, like, how angry would you be? Angry is probably too too kind of a word, I'm just saying. How, How mad would you be? Look what I've done for you, David. Look what we've done. And David goes, wow, thanks, and pours it out on the ground. But he doesn't just pour it out on the ground. It says that he poured it out to who? The Lord. Oh, wait a minute. There's there's something here that David sees that we miss. David understands that what these people are doing, risking their lives, willing to serve the king, whatever, was actually not service unto David himself, but was service to to God. Here's how we we see this. We know that these men are following David, not just because he's an incredible leader, military might, the whole deal, but because God has chosen him to be king. They have devoted themselves to the one that God has chosen. And David understands it. And for him to drink that water would be taking that which belongs to God. The devotion was not to David, but to God himself. Do you see this? 
He says, I, I'll never participate in what belongs to the Lord. I'll, I'll pour this out as an offering unto you, God. These men risked their lives for this. This was their devotion. He says, far be it for me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink from the blood of the men who went to risk their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. Their devotion, may I remind you, was unto God first. First. David knew that. My, my last little thought here, if, if the type and antitype, if the parallels between the stories are to be true, and know this, I, typology is a wonderful tool to study the Bible, but it's not 100% in everything, okay? You can way overreach in typologies, <laughs> way overreach, so just know this. So I know what I'm trying to suggest that the mighty men of God are kind of us or whatever, mm, maybe. But I don't want you to dismiss it because you don't think that some of the exploits that you um, performs, maybe the wrong word, but that some, of, some of your own exploits aren't so mighty unto God, so somehow you feel disqualified to be called a mighty man or a mighty woman of God. That the things you do, do don't seem to be so devoted unto God. Maybe that's what you're thinking. I didn't break through enemy lines and bring back water for someone. I, I didn't do anything. I didn't risk anything. Can I, can I just share a couple things with you as I close with this idea? I think you'd be shocked at the things that you do for God that he would consider to be mighty. I think, I think, I think it would blow your minds if you could hear God's voice as he says, what you're doing for me is, is, is huge in this world. I'll give you an example. Um, all right. If, if I could have the attention of some husbands in the room. <laughs> Here we go. Are you sitting down? Okay. Um, this goes for myself as well. I understand all this, but husbands sometimes, and this is a stereotypical statement. I'm overreaching on some of this. Stuff. I know, I know, I know, I know, but listen to me. Sometimes husbands have a hard time keeping their mouths quiet. <laughs> so, sometimes there's a, a piece a piece that's available to the household if God were to rule and reign that could be found and lived in if husbands would just shape up a little bit. And, and I don't mean like, you hear what I'm saying? And yet men, rather than submit to Christ, choose to go their own way, and now there's dissension there. But hear me, those of us who choose to obey the voice of God, to love our wives as Christ loved the church, to give our lives over for her, those of us, those men in the room, those husbands who choose that are doing mighty works before God. Do you know that? Your house on your street is a beacon. Oh, it's a light on a hill that draws people towards the riches that is Christ. Wives learning to submit to husbands as unto the Lord. Wait a minute. What? An overreaching stereotypical statement there is sometimes wives want to take charge sometimes. Right? They don't give room for their husbands to lead. And I know why. Men are idiots. Yes. Guilty. And yet, God has called them to lead the house. 
He's called us to lead the family. That it is what it is. And so for wives to jump into that role and take charge because my husband's a moron, and I agree, and all of that type of stuff, right? You're just refusing to let God do what God wants to do. But those that do choose that, again, is a mighty work of God. To lean upon the Lord when it comes time to discipline your children. This is a struggle of mine. Lord, I have about eight things I could discipline them with right now. <laughs> what do you want to do? What do you want to say? The thing at work, the situation at work, I could just get so frustrated and bounce or I could stay, remain, let God use me to make a change in the environment that I work in and all of this stuff. All, all I'm saying is those of you who are disqualifying yourself because you don't think you do mighty things for God, you're wrong. You're wrong. You do tremendous things for him. If you deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow him. Yes? I just felt like I yelled at everyone for the... <laughs> Apologize? Kinda. Man. They saw something in David. They saw it. Whatever it takes for this man, I will do. Are we living that way for Jesus? Are we? You tell me, are we? Are you? pray for us? Would you bow your heads with me? God, I want to do this. I want to do mighty exploits on your behalf, Lord. I want to be led by your Holy Spirit, empowered by the same Spirit to do these mighty things. As small as they might appear to the people close to me, they're huge for me. As small as they may appear even to me, God, they're huge to you. God, I pray in Jesus' name, not in my own name, but in Jesus' name, that you would make us to be like those mighty men, that we would be wholly devoted to you, that we would surrender our own rights to follow your rights, that we would deny ourselves, choosing free will to follow you, to take up a cross of crucifixion, a picture of death of, uh, of ourselves, and to follow you, God. I pray for these things for your sake, Lord, that Jesus' blood not be wasted, that the cross not be prostituted, that, that, that the work that you have done to procure our freedom and our, our safety and our deliverance from sin, God, would be used to glorify you, not for a license to do whatever we want because you'll forgive us anyways. God, attach us to your heart Make the words of Ezekiel, the prophet, real when it says that he'll remove the heart of stone that is inside of us and replace it with a heart of flesh, a fleshy heart that beats with the heartbeat of God himself. Make us those people, oh God. We thank you that Jesus has come. And like David defeating the giant Goliath, 
Jesus has come to defeat an even greater giant called sin and death and the grave. God, I thank you for your son, Jesus. I thank you for his sacrifice on our behalf. I thank you that you have opened our eyes to see him, that we may follow him all the days of our lives. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Together, we can reach the heart of Decatur. And if you'd like to be a part of that, please go to rendicatororg backslash give and make a commitment to be a part of showing the people of the city of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves them.